Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. As we look at another parable, if you've been with us for the past couple of months when I've been preaching, we've been looking at parables, and now we look at one toward the end of this chapter, Matthew 13. if you will, from verses 47 and following. This is called the parable of the the net. Depending on the Bible you have, if it gives titles, it may be called the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So ends the reading of God's holy word. The sermon will not be very long because the end of our service is going to be the uh, installation uh, of new officers. Um, so, in preparation of that, I grew up in the deep south in small Alabama town. I learned at an early age there are many ways to catch fish. Most of us think of a rod and reel that you cast or a cane pole with a bobber. You get a little more sophisticated, you might have used a trot line, which is a real strong cord with hooks every couple of feet strung across a narrow inlet or a river. If you got really sophisticated, and I'm going to leave some of you right now, you used yo-yos. These are spring-loaded devices that we would tie to branches overhanging water, and you'd put a live minnow on there, typically when there was a full moon at night, used to catch catfish. When I was a campus minister in Arkansas, I met students from, that came to Arkansas from Oklahoma, and they introduced me, in theory, to noodling. If you've seen reality TV, you know these insane people stick their bare hands up into uh, crevices in dark, muddy water to catch catfish. That isn't fishing. That is insanity. And being from a small Alabama town, we had all forms of night fishing with a little more exciting and a little more productive involving high-voltage battery. Well, okay. Even small pieces of dynamite. We lived in South Florida. Barbara and I did when we were first married. We would scuba dive, sometimes use a spear gun, various nets, cast nets. There are many ways to catch fish. This parable is about a form of fishing. It's called a dragnet. It's told at the end of Matthew 16, if you've been with us, we've looked at several of the parables that are told earlier in this same chapter. And I want to remind you, because it's been a couple of weeks, that a parable is not an illustration. A parable is really not even a short story, but a parable is a teaching tool. It's a teaching tool that relies on the listener to make the point. The point is not made by the teacher or the speaker, but in a parable... The point is made by the listener. Haddon Robinson said that 
in an illustration, in a message or a lesson or a sermon, an illustration is when the teacher or the preacher gives an abstract truth and then tries to clarify it with some sort of a story, something that illustrates the abstract truth in a way that's, that's tangible. A parable does not do that. Uh, a parable is something, as one person said, tossed alongside the truth. And then the listener has to make the connection. And I gave you this example, a very short parable, a very brief one. Even monkeys fall out of trees. That is a parable. Now, if I make the connection as I'm teaching that, or if I use that, if I say even monkeys fall out of trees and you scratch your head and look perplexed and I realize you don't understand, if I then say even experts make mistakes, then that has become an illustration. It's no longer a parable because I've made the connection for the listener. But if I leave it up to you, the listener, to make the connection, that is a parable and it forces you to, to get it. And a parable is something like poetry. It's somewhere in between the hidden and the obvious. And so just like poetry, if you don't work at it, you don't, you don't get it. You don't come away with, with the point, with the understanding. I read of a, an interview with a, a movie producer some years ago, and he said, he said in, in film that if the point can be made without dialogue, it's far more powerful on the viewer than if the actors have to speak. In other words, if you watch great actors and actresses, they are able to communicate all sorts of emotions and thoughts without saying a word. That's one of the indications of a great actor. And when it dawns on you, oh, they got it, oh yeah, that is more powerful than if the person actually speaks, at least according to that particular producer. Well, a parable, in a sense, is like that. Now, we've looked at the parable of the sower in this chapter. We've looked at the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, and those lead us to this next kingdom parable. Kingdom parable. They describe the kingdom of God. That is where God reigns. People of the Jews in Jesus' day were looking for the kingdom of God. They were expecting it to be a political, military kingdom that would break the backs of the Romans, their oppressors. But Jesus said the kingdom of God is wherever he rules. If you trust Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, you're made, a, you're made a citizen of that kingdom immediately. And ultimately, God's kingdom will rule everywhere. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. But that's in the future. So previously in chapter 13, he has said that the kingdom is, one, like a field where wheat has been planted, but someone comes at night with a sinister motive and they plant weeds all in this field. And he says the kingdom is like that. They both grow up together. At the end, the wheat will be gathered into barns. The weeds will be gathered up and burned. He says the kingdom is like treasure hidden in a field that a man finds and he covers it back up and he goes and sells what he has and he comes back and purchases the field so that he can get the treasure. He says the kingdom is like a businessman on a trip and he finds a pearl of great value and he knows what he's looking at and he sells everything that he has to get the money to buy the pearl of great price. He's, Jesus says the kingdom is like that pearl. And so the, the stress in those parables is that the kingdom of God is so valuable and that anyone, any wise person, would recognize its great value and do whatever is necessary to acquire it. 
Now he says the kingdom of God is like a net. He says in the parable it's thrown into the sea and it begins to gather up fish of every kind. So, so picture this in case you don't know about large seine nets or drag nets. Uh, they, what Jesus is describing, if it was here, it would be six or eight feet tall and as long as 100 yards. And at the bottom would be these weights or rocks to hold it down and at the top would be flotation things like corks to hold it up. So the way it would be used is fishermen, either in boats or depending if the water was shallow, they would take the net out and form a large semicircle coming back to the boats or to the beach. And they would have recognized that fish were already in that area. And they, they stretch out the net, and so the top is floating with the corks. The bottom, the weights are on the, uh, on the bottom, and they begin to pull that in. And this semicircle, they're pulling from this side, they're pulling from this side. And the semicircle just gets smaller and smaller and smaller until finally the fish are all pulled up, and that's how it's operated. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like just such a net. He called men to be fishermen. In Matthew 4, he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. That was not new with Jesus. That's Old Testament phraseology where God is referred to as, as fishing for people with a hook. And so the net drew in fish of all kinds, some that were edible, some that were not. Small size, big sizes, all kinds of fish flapping their tails in the net. The, the fish in this parable represent the visible church. The visible church, if you're not familiar with that term, the visible, you may say, well, every church is visible. I see it. There's this church here, the church over there. It's a term from Scripture. It's a theological term that it refers to all those people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who claim to believe in Jesus Christ and are members. They're members then of a church like a First Presbyterian or, or Mulberry Methodist or, or any other local church. We call that the visible church. Now, the invisible church is what's described at the end of this parable, and that is all true believers through all of time. Going back now through the centuries, all of them have been gathered in, and they are with God. That is the invisible church. So those in the visible church, the member of church Y, A, or Z, may not really be a member of that church because they may not really have Christ in their hearts. They may say the right things, at least enough to be a member of the church, but not really believe that. Now that's true. We see that. We don't need, don't need to belabor the point. And so the visible church is made up of, of fish gathered of all types. Big fish, little fish, poisonous fish, predatorial fish. I've met some of those. But the reality is, not all these fish are good fish. Not all these members of the visible church are members of the invisible church. Not all the people who profess to know Jesus really do know Jesus. Now, I draw an assumption from this parable, though it's not the main point. The assumption is that there's probably not a visible local church in all the world. In all of the world where all the members are also members of the invisible church. Okay, let me move on. Time is fleeting. In verses 48 to 50, the focus of the parable now, the main point, becomes the sorting of the fish. It's not really about the net itself. It's about what happens next. There will come a time when the net will be full. 
God will determine when the fishing is over. We're not there yet, but God will make that determination. We do not make that determination. Our job in this life is to drag the net, is to be pulling for fish. Who will sort the fish, according to the parable? The angels. The word in the Bible for angel means messenger. These messengers from God will separate the evil from the righteous. How are we made righteous? Through the imputed righteousness of Christ, through his perfect record, his sinless record. And so the emphasis here is on what happens to the bad fish. And it's a terrible picture of hell. That's where we're headed in this parable. Is we're going to see this picture of hell. What can we learn from this parable? Well, first, we are to fish as believers. We're to drag the net every time you share your faith with your friend or every time we gather for corporate worship and the gospel is preached. And in a thousand other ways, we're dragging the net. We can also learn that all local churches are composed of people who are converted and unconverted, children of God and children of the world. And just because someone um, has been received into membership of this church or any other, just because a person has received baptism, just because this person has partaken of the Lord's Supper or they're the leader of their Sunday school class, to assume that person is necessarily a member of the invisible church is foolish. What that can do is lull people into a sleepy stupor of apathy. Now, let me change perspectives from talking about out there, and let's talk about ourselves. You and I are inside this net. If you're in the church, the visible church, uh, you're in this net. Uh, we can receive the water baptism, but not... Does that, does, that does not mean we've partaken of the living water. We can partake of the Lord's Supper, but that does not necessarily mean that we've fed on Christ by faith. So the question for ourselves as we read this is, am I converted? Am I among the good fish? This is the most important question from the parable because the net is being drawn up to the shore. That's where we are in history. The net's being pulled up. Soon it will be pulled completely up and out of the water, and the true character of every heart will be exposed. And that's when the final separation of the fish will take place. Let's look at that. The net is dragged to the shore. The fish are separated. In verses 49 to 50, it says that the angels, the angels will come. They will separate the fish. They will gather the good ones and put them into containers. Then they will throw the bad fish, the evil ones, into the fiery furnace. And then Jesus says a phrase that is used often in the New Testament, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now it's as though Jesus is saying there is coming judgment and the fate of the ungodly will be horrible, will be terrible in that day. For two reasons. One, it will be absolute. The sorting by the angels will be absolute. In this life we have a mixture of the righteous and the wicked. We have redeemed people mixed in with the children of the world. And the camps are not clear. Even in the church, they are not clear. But that will change. That will all change. And God's angels will separate his people from those who are not his people. And then it will be permanent. There'll be no appeal. There'll be no reversal of the verdict. The day of choosing will be over 
The day of salvation will be past. Every natural thought we have wants to tell us this cannot be. This cannot be. There must be. There must be, even if there is a hell, there must be more chances after death. But the Bible says there isn't. And this phrase, there will be gnashing of teeth, I looked it up. I got a big, thick, I use books. (laughs) Some of you older people know what I'm talking about, a book. But I looked up every verse in the New Testament that uses that phrase. And some of those, Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 22, 13, Matthew 24, 51, Matthew 25, 30, and it all, the wording is, is almost identical. In that, Jesus spoke to me, he said, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we cannot and we should not try to gloss over the terrible descriptions of hell in the Bible. Despite the way we use the phrase, nothing does hurt like hell. Hell involves terrible, unimaginable suffering. Jesus described it that way. A few weeks ago, we looked at another parable of the rich man and and Lazarus and the terrible picture of suffering. And yes, much of it is figurative. Why do I say that? Well, we know that when we die, we, we have disembodied spirits until the day of the great resurrection and when we are given glorified bodies. So when the man in Hades looks up and sees Lazarus, and he says, send him to touch finger and water, touch my tongue. Best we know right now, there are no bodies like that. There are no tongues. There's not a finger. You say, well, you're saying the Bible's wrong? No, I'm saying it was figurative. And you may say, oh, man, I'm glad to hear that. No, always in Scripture, the figurative language is worse than the, re- I mean, the reality is worse than the figurative language. He's putting in a way that we can understand it. So what is the purpose of this parable? I don't, you know, we don't have the, the emotions that were being expressed when Jesus taught this. We only have the words. But I cannot believe that Jesus stood there in, real, in a nonchalant way, said, you know, it'll be at the end of the age. Yeah, it'll be gnashing, weeping of teeth. I, I, my, my opinion is, my guess is, it was far stronger. And this, the purpose of the parable is a warning. It's not to have a discussion about hell. It's not to have a discussion about, well, what does that say about God if he creates such a place? It's a warning. 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 That's why he said these parables. To get a reaction. To demand a decision from us. If you're driving at night, out in the country, no street lights, and it's raining, so it's really hard to see where does the road stop and the the field to begin and you're driving in an unfamiliar area and you're going along about 45 miles an hour and there are no other cars and you come around and there's a sign and a barricade and it says bridge out stop do not proceed do you stop the car and say to the person with you you know can you believe how mean that road worker was to put that sign up there what does that say about him he can't love us why did he put a sign like that or, you know, I don't, really, I don't really think the bridge is out. I think this is just said by some ancient people that didn't know better. I mean, I just, they didn't. Let's go on. Let's keep going. Well, there's a problem. Nobody that's been past that sign has come back except one, and he's the one saying this. So if we hear these things about hell, and I'm, listen, wouldn't you agree 
I would love for this doctrine not to be in the Bible. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love it if this was not here? If there's some way around it where like even some preachers in our area don't believe in hell? Christian, Protestant preachers don't believe in hell? Well, if you do away with hell, you certainly got to do away with heaven. You know, they kind of stand on the same rationale. But that's another subject, and my time is almost gone. And J.I. Packer put it this way, an endless hell can no more be removed from the New Testament than an endless heaven can. Well, he ends with a question. He finishes the parable, and then he says, have you understood all these things? He's talking about all the parables he's been giving, not just this one. And the disciples say, yes, we understand. Well, there's a little humor there because the odds of them really understanding were small. And without going further with what Jesus says after that, do you understand these things? To understand in the Bible means to, to act on it. It doesn't mean just to, you know, have intellectual assent to it. Are you among the righteous or the wicked? The wicked here does not mean one is sinner, a sinner and the other is not. We all fall under that category. We're all wicked. What he's separating there is those who are uh, left strictly with their record or those who have been forgiven through Christ. We may confess with our mouth the Apostles' Creed and say all the right things about Jesus and his death and so forth, but still not have real faith in him in our hearts. You can be in the church but not in the church. So have you understood what we call the bad news, good news, that we're all made in God's image, that we've sinned against him, that when Christ came, he died on a cross, not for his own sin, since he had none, but that my sin was put on him, it was punished in him, God punished him in my place. And there was victory over sin and death. Now I'm forgiven because of what Christ did. He took my sin, I take his righteousness. And so before God now, I stand with the righteousness of Christ. And you may be thinking, this sounds ridiculous. This sounds ridiculous. And you may say, I don't really, I mean, I like it, but I don't believe any of this stuff. I don't know if there's life after grave at all, uh, after the grave at all. Well, if you are there, and maybe you had not talked to anybody about it, I would, I would say read this chapter. Just go back and read Matthew 13 and pray. Maybe you're not a praying person, but pray a simple prayer. Say, Lord, give me eyes to see Give me understanding of this. Who wants, who wants to take a risk? Who wants to drive through the, the bridge out sign just to see if it was right or not? <laughs> it was right. His car's gone. We'll never see him again. So that's my suggestion. Ask God to give you understanding. Let's pray together. Uh, our Father, it's always been through the centuries that, that we uh, hear and people taught that this life is all there is, and there's nothing after this life, or if there is, it certainly isn't hell as described here in the Bible. And to a certain extent, that's probably affected every one of us uh, deeper than we realize. And yet we pray for hearts to heed the warning that Christ gave here and elsewhere. We pray for hearts to live with urgency and to make the most and not waste our lives, but to invest them in your service. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, that it is only through him. It's interesting, the man who spoke these words is the, is the only way we can avoid being where he's describing. So may our trust be in him and him only. In Jesus' name, amen.